it is good to be back. Uh, I, I missed worshiping with you last week. Um, Stacy and I had the opportunity to go to First Baptist Church of Dawson, Texas, just between here and Corsicana. And I was able to uh, preach there for them. And uh, I am uh, encouraged by their pastor and his love for the Lord and his love for the doctrines that we love, the doctrines that we that we know the scripture teaches. And uh, so I would encourage you to pray for First Baptist Church of Dawson. Um, and that said, it's good to be back. Now, when I was out last week, I did not hear the sermon that was preached. So I did my homework. So I come now having heard what you heard last week. And I say that as an encouragement to you because so many are out today and some of you have been out in the weeks past. And I want to encourage you to go and catch up uh, because the things that we're covering as we work through the book of Acts are, uh, we're not gonna go over them again. And, and I think they will be something that is important for you. So I'd encourage you when you're out to, to find a place to worship. Uh, we go on vacations, but God does not go on vacation. And worshiping him on the Lord's day should not go on vacation either. So as we travel, make travel plans. It blesses my heart as a pastor to hear our church members who ask, we're going to be traveling to such and such an area. Do you know a church in that in that area? I may not always know the church in, in a particular area, but uh, it blesses my heart to know that they will be uh, worshiping somewhere. And, uh, and, and I hope that you take that opportunity too. This has been a public service announcement before the sermon and should not count against my time. <laughs> Please turn in your copy of God's word to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We have worked through the book of Acts in a systematic, sequential study all the way from the beginning up through verse 8 of this chapter. And as we pick up today in verse 19, I'd like to take a few moments to give uh, us a summary to remind us where we've been and what we've seen in this first part, this first half of Acts. So uh, just working in our minds where we've been, we remember firstly that we have mainly followed the apostle Peter Peter has been the primary actor, the main character, if you will, up to this point. We've seen others come in and out. Stephen comes in uh, and Stephen was stoned. We've been introduced to Saul of Tarsus as a persecutor. And then we've seen Saul become a Christian. And I'll mention that several more times through this. But, but we've been introduced to other people. But Peter has been the main guy. And that is going to change as we move forward. We'll still see glimpses of Peter, but that'll change. Uh, so we we followed Peter and his ministry from the upper room on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit first came and indwelled believers there with signs and wonders. Uh, and that special Christian Pentecost gathering there were Jews, if you'll remember, from all over of the known world at that time who heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and they believed in him. And then a little later, we see in our we, we saw in our study of the book of Acts that the gospel, the good news of Jesus came to the Samaritans, uh, those who were half Jewish. And when the gospel came to the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit came to indwell those believers again with signs and wonders, just like he had done on Pentecost with the Jewish believers. And we saw that the Samaritans were being saved by the same Jesus, the same gospel in the same way. If you'll recall, when the gospel came to the Samaritans and they received the Holy Spirit, Peter was sent from Jerusalem 
to go and see what was happening in Samaria. And Peter went out on a mission from the church that he might see what's going on. And we might call what happened there in Samaria the Samaritan Pentecost. Uh, we had the Pentecost that was on the day of Pentecost with the Jews. And we might call this other thing the Samaritan Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and dwelled them. In our study, we have also seen that persecution in the church has increased. The stoning of Stephen, as I mentioned, as Saul of Tarsus stood there, looked on with approval. We saw the church being scattered due to these persecutions. And we look and we say, what a shame and what an awful thing. And it was a shame and an awful thing. But we also see that God used that persecution to move people and to move those Christians out. And Christians went all over the region from Jerusalem. Then they fled to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In today's text, we're going to find some specific places that people fled to when they fled from Jerusalem uh, where they landed in this dispersion. We also, as I've mentioned, saw the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, that great persecutor of the church, was converted, came to Christ on the road to Damascus. The man, and you know, I just used the term. I think this might be a, well, I don't know. When I think I have a short sermon, I tend to add a few more things and then it becomes the longest thing ever. So I'll try not to do that. But I just said Paul or Saul came to Christ on the road to Damascus. We use that kind of terminology, but Christ came to him, right? I mean, that's, that's the way that worked. Uh, so we saw Saul's conversion. This man who went to apprehend Christians wound up being apprehended by Christ. Uh, so we saw uh, just this brief glimpse of Saul after his conversion to Christianity, he came to Jerusalem and in verse uh, in chapter nine of Acts, we read this and this is going to be relevant to our study today. So listen to Acts 9, 26. When he came to Jerusalem, this is Saul. He, and this is Saul as a Christian. He tried repeatedly to associate with the disciples and yet they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple, but Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and how, uh, how that he had talked to him and how he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus at Damascus. So Barnabas here in this brief post conversion glimpse of Saul's life we see Barnabas who came alongside Saul as a friend and a brother that he needed him to be at that time. Then we can move forward from chapter nine into chapters 10 and 11. Most recently we have seen an Ethiopian come to faith in Christ. And then we saw the events surrounding Cornelius, uh, which where God made it clear to Peter and to Cornelius and to the church and to the whole world that Gentiles would be included in the kingdom without becoming Jews. And the events at Cornelius's house in Caesarea, they could be called the Gentile Pentecost. So we have Pentecost that happened in Jerusalem at Pentecost. We have what we could term the Samaritan Pentecost. And we have in Caesarea at Cornelius's home, what could be called the Gentile Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwelled those believers and they demonstrated the same signs that had been demonstrated in Jerusalem and Samaria and now it's come to the Gentiles. <clears throat> Most recently we saw how the church in Jerusalem responded to this Gentile inclusion in the kingdom. They responded rather poorly. Uh, to the idea that Gentiles could come to faith in Jesus, could become Christians without any connection whatsoever to Judaism. They were really taken aback, knocked for a loop at the news of Peter going into a Gentile's home and eating with a Gentile. Um, so we'll see in today's text that when there is help needed in the Gentile work of the gospel. Uh, that help is not sought from Jerusalem. They don't even go and ask for help from Jerusalem. And this 
is a sad story, but it speaks to the state of things. <coughs> Excuse me. An Ethiopian has been saved. Cornelius' household was saved. But we are about to see in our study of Acts an explosion in church growth from the Gentiles being saved. Just as we are amazed when we read that in Jerusalem at Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church, we're about to see this astronomical growth. It's huge among the Gentiles. This is where we find ourselves in today's text. So please, if you've made your way to Acts 11, follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read from verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began to speak uh, and began to speak to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to, uh, to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Verse 27, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the spirit that there would definitely be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And to the extent that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this, sending it with Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of salvation that its pages reveal. We thank you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his life and death, in his resurrection and ascension. And we thank you that he continued to work and accomplish your will in this world through the Holy Spirit indwelled believers making up your church, your bride, your body. We pray today that you would help your church today as we read and study of your church so long ago. Help us to see how you have organized, how you have blessed your church. And help us that we might love your church more as we love you more. Hide this preacher behind the cross of Calvary. Speak to your people here today. In Jesus' precious and holy name, we ask these things. Amen. At first glance, one might wonder about this passage. How do you preach this? This is not a passage that has a didactic teaching. There's no command here that I can exhort you, go and obey this command. There's no promise here to say, believe this promise. So how do we preach this passage? What we will find as we work through this passage that though it doesn't stand out with didactic teaching or promises, these are a few statements of historical fact, happenings about the, time, uh, the church at this time 
But as we work through these verses, we will gather some nuggets, some gold nuggets, if you will. Doubtless, we will not mine everything that is available in these verses. I don't think I'm smart enough for that. But we will see plenty here this morning to feed our souls. So let's look beginning in verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to these places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. Up to this point in our study, I mentioned that Peter has been kind of the main character, but we also would note that the center of the church up to this point has been Jerusalem. This is where the apostles were based out of. This has been kind of a home base of sorts for the Christian church and all that has gone on. Things that that have happened, those who were sent would come back and report and this, this hub is here in Jerusalem. But Jesus had predicted 40 years before it would come to pass, the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus gave amazing details of the destruction of the city and, and he warned the Christians that when they see these things beginning to take place, that they were to get out of the city, that they were to go into the country. So if the Christians and the Christian church was to continue to grow and even to thrive and Jerusalem would be destroyed, then we have to see in the New Testament a new base of operations, something other than Jerusalem. And that's what we see in this text. We're introduced to Antioch. And maybe you know of a church named Antioch. What a wonderful church name. That's all I'm going to say about that. Antioch was an important city. It is said to have been the number three city in importance in the Roman Empire and the number three city in size behind Alexandria and Egypt and, of course, behind Rome. Antioch was the capital of the Roman province of Syria. Antioch was an important city as it was built to be an important city for games and for false worship, false gods. But the great growth of Christianity from Antioch would lead to this city being known as the cradle of Christianity. God can take a city built for false worship and say, this is going to be the cradle of Christianity. Now don't miss in verse 19, the fact that they were speaking of Jesus only to the Jews. We just point out here that there is no record of any Gentile work coming out of the Jerusalem church. This is another reason why the central point, the center focus of church for Christianity had to shift and it was shifted to Antioch. Verse 20 says, but there were some men, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch. Now these places were mentioned back in Jerusalem at Pentecost, those who had come from all over for that celebration, they were there. These men of Cyprus and Cyrene were not just Jerusalem Jews with a narrower mindset. These had a broader experience, a broader world than just those Jerusalem Jews. Verse 20 continues, those men came from Cyprus and Cyrene and came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. Not just a single Ethiopian, not just a single household. Now the gospel is going out to mankind without distinction. The gospel goes. Note there was no Antiochene gospel. That's a real word. 
I looked it up. There was no Antiochene gospel. There was no mods to the message for this area. This is the same story, the same good news, the same Jesus, the same cross, the same empty tomb, the same risen Savior is preached to the same kind of sinners. They may have spoken a different language. They may have had a funny accent, but this is the same gospel. This is the same work. What a shame it is to hear in our day people who ask how the gospel must be shaped or must be reinvented in order to reach a certain people group or to be accepted in a certain place. Christians, the gospel must not change. The gospel cannot change. A modified gospel is to borrow from the apostle who wrote Galatians, not another gospel. It's no gospel at all. These Christians spoke to a new bunch of people, but they were still preaching the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, unmodified. They came and they preached Jesus. Verse 21 tells us, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. They preached, they preached Jesus and him crucified. But still, just in coming to Antioch and preaching and preaching Christ and preaching the cross and preaching the risen Savior, nothing would happen unless the hand of the Lord was with them. The outward call would accomplish nothing unless the hand of the Lord was with them. A large number who believed, the scripture tells us, turns to Jesus. But without the hand of the Lord, no one would believe and no one would turn to Jesus. The spirit of our age is to accept that Christians today can convince people to believe in Jesus. We can talk them into the kingdom. I've heard more than one preacher say something like this. Give me 30 minutes with a person and I'll lead them to faith in Christ. Set me beside a lost person on an airplane and before we land, they'll be a Christian. We see this in the attitude of revivalism over the past hundred or so years. If we can sing the right songs, if we can have the people stand and sit at just the right places, if we can have a rise and a fall in the service that we're putting together, if we can set the air conditioning at just the right level. Some of you may think I'm making this up, but I'm not. This is how people are manipulated. We say, if we can do all that, we can make revival happen. Charles Finney famously or infamously said, we don't need the Holy Spirit to bring revival. We see people all around us trying to manipulate people into the kingdom. And by the way, we wonder, you hear me say things like Charles Finney said, we don't need the Holy Spirit. We can, we can make revival. We can create revival. Those things that were just part of the the tent revival movements have crept into the church. What were they doing? They were gathering. You may be in trouble. They were gathering on the weekends in a in a tent for a big crusade, and they bring in some because they're gonna they're gonna invite the world who doesn't know our music. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna entertain people with music, and then once we get them entertained. We manipulate them into making decisions that most of the time mean nothing. And that has crept into the church. We wonder how we arrived at a, at a day where there's worshiptainment. It's because we've seen those things come into the church and become part of our worship. These verses tell us 
as well as many other scriptures that salvation is the work of the Lord. They preached the hand of the Lord was with them. Now that's a, that's a figure of speech, right? What it means is the spirit was regenerating dead sinners. They preached and the hand of the Lord was with them and those who believed turned to Jesus. This is not new to us, but it is a reminder and we need a reminder from time to time. Without God's work, we are wasting our time. So we don't just come together and do church. We come and we do what God has commanded and pray that his hand would be with us. They preached the hand of the Lord was with them. And that's why people came to Christ. That's why people came to faith. Verse 22, the news about them reached, the, the news about these new converts, all these Gentiles coming to Jesus, reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Just like when the news reached them that the Samaritans had received the gospel and had received the spirit, they sent Peter to go and check it out. Now they hear of the events at Antioch and they send Barnabas. It's interesting. I, I don't have an answer for why they didn't send an apostle. Uh, maybe the apostles were, and we can assume that they were busied in other ministry work. But as it becomes evident, Barnabas is exactly the right guy. Barnabas is exactly the right man to go and do this work in Antioch. So we note here that Barnabas was sent. Now surely he wasn't sent against his will. We don't care where you want to go. You're going. To, no, it wasn't that. Surely Barnabas wanted to go, but he didn't just say, I want to go. So I'm out of here. He was sent by the church. This is more than his will involved. This is the will of the church. Today, we hear many a man say, God is calling me to go to and then fill in the blanks. And then it is assumed that the church is supposed to say, okay, who are we to argue with God? If God's telling you to go to this place and do this thing, that must be the thing. But this church is backward. The church has the authority and the responsibility to send men into ministry. The church calls a man into the pastorate. But there are many men who are self-called and they should not be. If self-call is the end of it, they should not be in ministry. Romans 10 tells us how this should work. Romans 10, 14 following says this. How, are, how then are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So if you're not sent, you can't preach. You got to be sent by the church. Barnabas was not a self-called, self-sent man. The church sent Barnabas into ministry. Verse 23, he arrives in Antioch. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. This is, this is Barnabas. If you'll remember back in Acts 4, we read about a man named Joseph. It's the same man. See, this guy's name is not Barnabas. This guy's name is Joseph. And in Acts 4, it says, and the apostles called him Barnabas because he was an encourager. This is nickname. Barnabas is a son of encouragement. And they're like, man, Barnabas fits you, brother. And he is an encourager. Uh, by the way, that from Acts 4. Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, just their, their name they gave him. Barnabas was an encourager. But I want us to understand 
being an encourager. It's not just that Barnabas was a positive guy. Sometimes we get that idea in our mind. Someone who's always uh, on, on the positive beat. We say, wow, that guy's just encouraging. I, I just feel uplifted every time I'm around him. Well, we need to think more and we need to think deeper of what it is for a Christian to be an encourager. It says here, Barnabas encouraged them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. See, his encouragement wasn't just positivity that was empty, that was vacuous. Barnabas was encouraging, but he was not just a cheerleader. He wasn't just a hype man. So let us not think about being an encourager. Please, let's not be that. An empty, vacuous, hype person. Let's be an encourager like Barnabas. Who encouraged people with substance. Remain true to the Lord. What an encouragement that is. And church, let us pray to God for encouragers like Barnabas among us today. And let us seek to be this kind of encourager. Verse 24 says the same, almost the same description that we have earlier in Acts of Barnabas. We have here in verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's a testimony, isn't it? You just think about what it would be for somebody to say, have you met Joe? Have you met Bill? He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That's quite a testimony. All of a sudden, you want to meet that person. May the Lord make us like that. Verse 24 ends with this. And considerable numbers were added to the Lord. Barnabas is in Antioch. He's preaching. He's teaching. Considerable numbers. I don't know what considerable numbers were. But, you know, after we got past Acts 2 or 3... They stopped giving us numbers. Luke stops writing down. Maybe the numbers just got big enough. I mean, he's telling us 3,000 were added in one day. And then he's like, okay, considerable number. If 3,000 was a number to write down, what is considerable? This is exponential church growth. This is big. Now, many people would say, this is the wrong time for a pastor to leave a thriving ministry. But Barnabas knew what was needed, or rather he knew who was needed at this work in Antioch. And verse 25 tells us he left to go to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas had been back in Jerusalem, the friend and brother that Saul needed while Saul was in Jerusalem. And now almost eight years has passed. I mean, it's only a few pages in our Bibles, but this is a period of eight years that has passed since Saul was converted on the road to Damascus and went to Jerusalem. Saul has not been mentioned. Saul has lived this eight years in virtual obscurity. Barnabas had to go find him, the verse tells us. Some think that this was not an easy task, that when Saul came to Christ, that he lost his family, that he would have lost his inheritance, that he would have lost his connection to family. So Barnabas just couldn't drive up to the family estate and say, hey, I'm here to look for Saul, the master of the house. He has to go find him. He had to look. And verse 26 says, when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Someone commented this week that they would love to hear that conversation. <laughs> Saul's there living his life, surely involved in serving the Lord in some capacity. And Barnabas comes. I'll bet this conversation would have been right up there with when William Farrell convinced Calvin to stay on at Geneva. Whatever was said, the Lord was in it. And Saul came back to Antioch and worked alongside Barnabas. The verse tells us for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers of people. 
there are considerable numbers of people. Some would think, well, if we're coming in and we've got this ministry, this church with considerable numbers of people, we need to punch up the meetings. We, we, need, to, we need to improve things so that it's more appealing. We need to do the stuff that keeps people coming. Some might think we need to add extra programs. We got all these people, we need extra programs. But they met with the church and taught the scripture. They met with the church and taught the scripture. Over the past 14 years, we've had some people at Waco Family coming in and out who have, who have assumed we didn't know about programs. Or maybe we didn't know how to do programs. Maybe we didn't know how to do stuff that the hip church does. But the truth is, we're just trying to do what the Bible tells us to do. We're trying to meet for worship and teach the scripture. That's, that's the program. Next year, what we're going to do is <laughs> we're going to try to meet for church, meet for worship, and teach the scripture. As long as the Lord delays his coming and, and enables us, gives us the strength, this is what we're going to do. That's what Barnabas and Saul did. They met with the church and they taught considerable numbers of people. Let me say that those people, those Antioch church folks, they were showing up. They met and taught considerable numbers of people because those considerable numbers of people were coming. We should not be asking this question on a Sunday morning. We should not be asking this question in Sunday school. We should not be asking this question on Wednesday night. Where is everybody? We shouldn't be asking that. Those who gather on Sunday morning and proclaim their love for Jesus Christ, are we to believe that we're just that tied up? That we can't get here an extra hour for Sunday morning? We're just that busy and overscheduled that we can't set aside another hour in the middle of the week? To be taught the doctrines of scripture? Brothers and sisters, some of us need to reevaluate our schedules and set some priorities to be here for teaching. And let me say this while I'm making everybody mad, let us not use this camera and the internet as an excuse. I don't have to be there because I can virtually be there. Virtual live streaming stuff is a value in certain circumstances, but it can become an excuse for sin. Let us not let it be that. For an entire year, they met with the church and they taught considerable numbers of people. And then at the end of verse 26, we read this. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, we use that term all the time, don't we? I, just in writing the sermon, I had in my mind, the disciples were first called Christians. So I kind of noted, I use the term Christian a lot in the beginning of this sermon. We use this term as, as a favorite title and descriptor to describe who we are. Before Antioch, they were called disciples. They were called followers. They were called people of the way. But in Antioch, they were called Christians. And this name didn't come from within the church. They didn't have a meeting. What do we want to be called? What's our team name? <laughs> it wasn't that kind of thing. This name 
Christian may not even have been intended as a compliment. It may have been more of a derogatory term. Man, have you met those people? They are all about Christ, Christ, Christ. They're Christians. The name Christian only appears two or three other places in the Bible, in the New Testament. But they were first called Christians at Antioch. What does this tell us about the ministry of Barnabas and Saul? Look, just, just search through these verses in your Bible and see if you see when they were called Paulinians. When were they called? I don't know how to make Barnabas into a name. When were they called Bar Barnissi, uh, whatever. You get my point? It's not there. I personally believe other than our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no preacher that compares to Paul. What, what a guy. What a ministry. What gifting. Nobody's called Paulinians. Because Paul wasn't about Paul. Barnabas wasn't about Barnabas. They preached Christ and Christ crucified. And people knew that church as Christians. In our day, I know many of you went straight to where I go, right? What about Calvinists? I think John Calvin would hate that name. I think he would hate. This is a man, my understanding is he is, his burial place is unknown because he did not want people coming there and paying homage. And he's going to say, take the doctrines of the grace of Jesus Christ and put my name on them. Now we are in a world where that name can sometimes be useful. Most of the time, I think it's not. But Calvinists, I'm addressing you Calvinists. Let us be known as Christians. Let us be known by our Lord Jesus Christ. They were first called Christians at Antioch. This has been an account up to these verses of the start of the church at Antioch. And I just want to look at these last few verses very quickly before we finish. Now in, the, in verses 27 and following, we see this new church being a part of or we might say associating with other churches. In this specific case, the church of Jerusalem. Uh, verse 27, we have uh, at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, who stood up and indicated that the, uh, by the Spirit there would definitely be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place. This was a true prophecy from God. This is a prophecy Remember, this is the time before the New Testament was completed. So this is before this type of revelatory gift had ended. And it was told that a difficulty, a major difficulty that Americans, we know nothing of, famine. This was coming and it did come. And those in Jerusalem would be affected, especially in a harsh way. There would be great need. Now, these Christians in this church were related to or associated enough to be in touch, to know what was going on in their sister church. They could know the blessings of the church and rejoice with them. They could know the difficulties and cry with them. And here they know the need and they can help in a time like this. And that's exactly what they do in verse 29. To the extent that any disciple had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This new church, this new work at Antioch, this congregation didn't say, well, we're such a new church. 
Should we be involved in this type of missionary work, really? Should we be involved in this type of relief? We're such a new church. Maybe somebody else will do this. We're so busy with our own ministry, this explosive growth. We shouldn't get involved. No, they determined that they would help as they were able. This didn't mean that they stopped or even slowed down the ministry of their own church, their own ministry efforts, but they were sharing the burden of a sister church. The Waco family, we have the privilege and the responsibility with the sister churches in our association. We're able to help by praying for those brothers and sisters. We're able to rejoice with them in their blessings and they with us. We're able to shed tears with them and they with us during hard times. And we get to help financially when that is needed. This is church association as it should be. Verse 30, and we'll close here. Because it's the end. They did this, collect this collection, sending it with Barnabas and Saul to the elders. The church at Antioch sent their gift, sent the financial aid, the financial help, with Barnabas and Saul. That's what I want you to hear. Barnabas and Saul. Later, when these two are sent on their first missionary journey, when Saul preaches in the middle of Acts 13, from that point forward, we will hear about Saul. No, Paul. We'll hear about Paul and Barnabas. But here, Barnabas and Saul. Saul, it seems to me, to be clear. That Saul has greater gifts than Barnabas. Even, even a good man like Barnabas. But Saul is content to be the second man. Until the time that our Lord raises him to a different place. It's Barnabas and Saul. He's okay with that. Too many men are ready to enter ministry so they can have in ministry worldly success or, or success that is measured by the world. I have a friend who has some level of fame within Christendom. And he says that young men come to him all the time and say, how do I do what you do? I want to do what you do. And what they mean by that is I want to have preacher fame. I want to speak to crowds of thousands. I, I want to have that kind of ministry. I'm glad to report that my friend tells him to go do something else. The church needs men who are not looking for preacher fame or any other kind of fame. The church needs men who will meet for worship with the church and teach the scripture, preach the doctrines of scripture, Proclaim Christ crucified as the only hope for sinners. The church needs men who are content to be nobody. A successful man of God who is a preacher, who is a pastor, will preach the word faithfully and die and be forgotten. Preachers need to be nobody who preach the only somebody who matters. If God raises a man to a place of prominence, and this does happen, he'll later do this with Saul. We have seen this in history with a few others, just to name a few names, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, Calvin, if God raises a man to a place of prominence, then there's nothing wrong with that. And there's great responsibility that comes along with that. But we don't go seek that. And the same goes for our church, not just the minister, but for the church. We, we don't want 
numbers and wealth and buildings and land for the sake of all of those things? That's, that's worldly ideas. We need to be faithful with what God has given us. With where God has us. And if God sends larger numbers, we'll be faithful. And if God sends more money, then let's be faithful. If God gives us a building someday, we'll give him thanks and we'll be faithful. But until then, let's learn from Saul to be content to be Barnabas and Saul. The big joke among Reformed Baptist pastors that I hang out with is I pastor the largest Reformed Baptist church in and then name the city because none of us are big. But let us be content to be nobody. Proclaiming Jesus. Waco Family Baptist Church, let us be faithful to the ministry that God has blessed us with and let us pray that his kingdom is advanced. That lost souls would believe and turn to Jesus as they did in Antioch. And that the church would be edified and its members sanctified. God, we thank you for the blessings that we have received from your hand. We thank you for what you have done in this place. Bringing brothers and sisters in Christ together, bringing lost souls to salvation. God, your work here is such a blessing to us. Lord, we give you thanks for it. We pray that we could be faithful and more faithful. Help us as we study the scripture to see churches like this one in Antioch as a model and help us to be the church that you have us to be. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.